you want to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. terms like ivory towers and the idea behind that term is uh, that people have their like education and they just simply stay in their education and they build an ivory tower and it does like no good other than academia you may have heard that you may not have heard that uh, you may have heard of uh, seminaries being cemeteries anybody heard that one yeah that one's, that one's um, often said as well and the idea is that you go to seminary you learn and then you pretty much die there because you lose all passion and zeal um, as you learn the truths that should um, generate even more passion and more zeal for um, what you're learning about. These, these are common ideas, and um, unfortunately, sometimes I think that we see similar things happen um, just within our own churches. We, we learn theological truth and the theological truth becomes the standard and the goal instead of the application of that truth. And um, that, that is, I believe, what you see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. As we work through that this, um, this evening, you're going to, I hope, see that with me. And, and so Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and as he writes to the Thessalonians, he encourages them about how they are to live, how they are to function with one another. And it's um, no secret, I have a desire to lead us towards uh, small groups, and as we move in that direction, I'm trying to encourage you and point you to a number of passages in Scripture that teach us of the importance of equipping and encouraging and instructing one another. And what I'm proposing is we're not doing a good enough job doing that by our old system. And I think that we would find ourselves influenced better by one another and strengthened one another by one another's fellowship um, if we were to incorporate something like that. And so as, as Paul works through this passage, he gives us theology, rich theology, theology that we cherish, uh, theology that we would separate from some believers over, um, and yet the theology is not the goal. The theology is simply the means by which we reach the goal. And the goal of the passage is that we would be encouraged, that we would be comforted, that we would be exhorted to live faithfully in our day-to-day -day lives. And so the theme of the passage, I believe, is encourage one another with our future hope. Encourage one another with our future hope. If you would take your Bibles, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 13 through verse 18. Uh, next week, we're going to continue on in chapter 5. Um, I'm not sure if we'll do two more weeks in Thessalonians chapter 5 or if we're going to do one. I haven't got that far down. Um, but th those are going to be coming up. Uh, chapter 5 is that is. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For... If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. If you skip down to verse 11 of chapter 5, you're going to see that theme carried on. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, he talks about future events. And in verse 11, he gives them the command that accompanies those events. What they're supposed to do as a result. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another just as you are doing. If you skip down to verse 12 and 13, you continue this idea. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. So the theme of the passage is how do we work with one another? And he says one of the ways you do that is by applying scriptural truths to each other's lives. First Thessalonians is not a book written to pastors. Titus is a book written to pastors. First Timothy, Second Timothy, written to a pastor. Thessalonians is written to a church. The church is to encourage Exhort, comfort, rebuke. That is my job, yes, but it's also your job. And so we're, we're wanting to encourage you to find ways to more effectively um, apply uh, these truths. All right. So what, what exactly is going on in the text? He begins and he, he really just right out front tells us what he wants us to do. And it appears that there is some sort of uh, grief that is going on, and it's grief without hope, really, that's going on in the early sections. And he's writing to address that problem. Because believers grieve with hope. They don't grieve without hope. Rather, they grieve with hope. They believe who Jesus is, and so they live out that faith. They live out the truth of the gospel. And so, he begins and he, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. I remember um, back when I was in, I think, fourth grade, um, my, my fourth grade teacher, uh, this was in a public school, he, he said something, and one of the kids said, Well, he's ignorant. And you know what my teacher said? He goes, Number one, that's not nice. Number two, it's not true. Because you don't know what the word ignorant means. Because ignorant doesn't mean like he's stupid. It just means he's uninformed. He doesn't know something that maybe he should know or maybe he doesn't know. He just doesn't know about that item. And so Paul is writing and he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to have this as a space that's not filled in or not clear in your minds. What he's telling them is, I want you to learn something. Learning, then, he says, is a good thing. Why? Because it's going to correct this misunderstanding that they have. 
And as this misunderstanding is corrected, they'll be able to live their lives in such a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. So learning is not being downgraded in the passage. Rather, learning is being elevated. And he's going to tell them exactly what they're supposed to be reminded of. Exactly what they're supposed to remember and call to mind and not be ignorant of so that they can live and grieve with hope. He's not telling them don't grieve. He's saying grieve with hope. And, and so the verse, verse 13, the very early part, comes out and it says, But I do not want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. He goes on and he says, There's a misconception about believers who have died and where they are. <coughs> And so the misconception seems to be that these people have died and they've just ceased to exist and they're not there anymore. And he's like, that's not how this works. Death is not the end. Rather, there's something that goes beyond death. And so he, he calls them then to learn something. And, and learning then is going to equip them. It's going to be an antidote for worldly grief. Concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. What's he telling them? He's telling them, you have hope. You have real, enduring, life-giving hope. In the midst of what the world sees as immense, unbearable sorrow. And so he tells them, grieve with hope. That is the command. That is what they're supposed to do. He doesn't word it as a command, though. Everything is worded simply didactically. That is, everything is worded just as if he's teaching them. <coughs> he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants them to learn how to grieve with hope. But he doesn't really come out right and say, grieve with hope. He just says, live your life in such a way that your grief demonstrates your hope. And so it naturally brings up the question, uh, what is the hope? What, what knowledge, what misunderstanding is there that they're ignorant of and that maybe you and I may be ignorant of? And so he gives them two things in the, in the following verses. Verse 14 tells us one of the things that they're ignorant of. And then verses 15 through 17 tells us the second thing. And he says, remember the resurrection. Remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verses 15 through 17, what he's going to say is, the other thing that you must remember is, you must remember the teaching of Jesus Christ. So let's start with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that verse 14 starts with the word for. That is giving us reason or a cause. When you uh, flip to verse 15, or maybe you look down in your Bible, might not have to flip. Verse 15 starts with what? Another for, another reason, another cause. For what he's just mentioned. That you should grieve with hope. So what's the first one? Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Remember Jesus's resurrection. What he's saying is, you have professed something. You have professed faith in Jesus's death and resurrection. Why is that important? Why is it? Why, why would you or I profess faith in Jesus Christ? 
What does that mean? It's probably beneficial if we at least remind ourselves of what that means. What that means is you and I were dead in our sins. We were separated. We were alienated from God. There was nothing in us that could ever earn God's favor. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. He came. He died on the cross for your sins, for my sins. So that if I believe in Jesus' finished work, I no longer have to pay for my sins. But the news is actually better because God doesn't simply require that you have a zero account to get into heaven. He requires that you are righteous, that you are holy to get into heaven. And so the good news doesn't simply bring you to a balance of zero. The good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection brings you to a positive account. Faith accredits righteousness to your account. And he says... This is what we profess. This is what we believe. We believe that Jesus died and that he rose again. And I go, well, that's great. But my family member, my friend, my acquaintance is still dead. So great, Jesus rose again. What good does that do me? And that's where at the end of verse 14, he begins to explain to us what that means for you and I. The end of verse 15. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep or are dead in Jesus. God's going to resurrect them. This is part of what we profess. This is the source, then, of our joy. Is this provided hope that we have stored up. This comfort in knowing that Jesus is resurrected, and because Jesus is resurrected, we will one day be resurrected. And the grave is not the end. And so he says, remember Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection guarantees for you, it guarantees for me, that the death of a loved one is not the end. And so we rejoice in the hope of our confession. And so that's the first reason he gives us. He says, don't grieve without hope. Rather, grieve with hope. It's not that you're not going to be sorry that somebody dies, but you are sorry realizing there is a future hope stored up. The resurrection. Because Christ lives, we will live. He moves on in verse 15. As he moves on in verse 15, he says, remember Jesus' teachings. Verse 15 begins by saying this. For this we say to you, by what? By the word of the Lord. We're saying this by what authority? What's the foundation? What's the groundwork upon which he's saying this? It's Jesus' teaching. This is what Jesus taught when he was with them. This isn't simply Paul making up something or one of the other apostles, you know, are like, you know, people are really discouraged when we have a person die. It really affects the the working of the church. and So let's come up with a grand story that will help people feel better in the midst of their grief so that we don't have that, you know, hump. I know, we'll tell them that there's a resurrection to come. Paul's like, no. no this is Jesus' teaching. And it matches what we saw in Jesus' life. That Jesus 
rose from the dead. And so what is Jesus' teaching? He moves on to explain to us what, what Jesus' teaching includes. He says, it includes this. Remember, Jesus taught us the truth, and as he taught us the truth, he taught us that the dead in Christ will not be left behind. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. He says, your fear is that everybody who's died is going to miss out on the eternal promises of God. Now, that's not going to happen. You're not going to get ahead of them. God's not going to forget those who have died already and leave them behind and, you know, they just kind of become sand and dirt and too bad for them. Good for you, though, you outlived them. That's not the idea. Rather, there is hope for even those who have died. He moves on, and as he does so, he says, Christ will return with great glory. In verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What is this describing? This is describing the rapture. And he says what happens at the rapture is God in great glory will make pronouncements that Jesus Christ is returning. He will resurrect those who have died and he will rapture the saints to be with him. Now this is all in alignment with who's teaching? Paul's, but more importantly, Jesus' is teaching. Verse 15 tells us that. This is what they received by the word of the Lord. And so Christ will return in great glory, and the dead will be resurrected. But not only that, the dead will be resurrected. We will not precede them. They will go before us. And then verse 17, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. What's he saying? They're going to be resurrected, and as they are resurrected, all of us then will meet the Lord in the air. And not only will we meet the Lord in the air, but we will eternally be with the Lord. We will eternally be in his presence, enjoying him, enjoying the great gift of his Son to us. The fact that through him I am righteous. Through Jesus Christ, I stand before the throne of God. Not of my own works, but of his. And so, we grieve with hope. Why? Because we've seen, we've heard, we've seen the testimonies of Jesus' resurrection. And we know, 1 Corinthians 15, that without the hope of the resurrection, we of all people are most to be pitied. Right? But we also know that this is what Jesus himself taught as he was with us. And so he says, grieve with hope. The resurrection provides future hope. Grieve with hope. Jesus himself taught these truths. This is what will happen. Take comfort. Take joy in this. He concludes... And this is really the only command. This is the only thing that he's really commanding us to do. The other things have implications. What he actually comes out and he says, you have to do this, is this. 
comfort one another. Verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He tells us to grieve with hope. But that's more of an implication. And he doesn't really come out and tell us directly in a command form, grieve with hope. What he does tell us, though, is what he does command us to do is to comfort one another with these words. The command of the text is for all of us. We, we referenced this at the beginning when I, when I mentioned that this is not a book that is written for pastors. It's not a book that is written primarily for deacons. It's not a book that is written for any select narrow group within a church. Rather, this is a text that is written for the entire body of Christ and is commanding all of us to find ways to encourage, to exhort, to comfort each other with the hope of the gospel. That is your assignment. That is my assignment. To find hurting, broken, desperate people within the body of Christ this week with whom we can engage in meaningful conversation and point them to the hope that we have. And the hope is found in none other than Jesus Christ. And so this is a command for you. This is a command for me. This is a command for all of us. And so you are responsible then for encouraging, exhorting, and comforting one another. This, this word, therefore, comfort each other, is often translated exhort. Most likely it has more of an idea of encourage or comfort and not exhort. You know, exhort is more like a preaching, you know, um, forceful, like, do this, right? Probably in the context that we have people that are grieving, um, five, uh, fourteen or whatever. Never exhort you, brethren. Warn those who are unruly. Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. Now, you approach different people in different ways, right? So if you have a rebellious teenager, you know you're a little more firm with them. If you have somebody that's weak. Or is lazy, you address that differently. So the context probably calls for something that's more encouragement or comfort oriented, not something that's, you know, more heavy handed. And so he says, comfort, encourage, exhort. Ultimately, it all boils down to this. You and I are responsible to share the words of Christ this week. Verse 18 ends, and it ends in a way that's very, very interesting. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Whose words? Christ's words, right? Ultimately, it all boils down to Christ. Christ has told us who he is, what he's accomplished, and what he will do on our behalf. You have the hope of the gospel because of Christ. You have the hope of your future presence with him because Christ has promised it. What other words are you going to use to encourage somebody? You don't have anything else. This is all you have. is scripture. The words of truth. 
They're to guide and encourage and direct their lives. And Paul writes and he ends and he says, I'm entrusting it to you. I can't be there. I have my own ministry to attend to. My own responsibilities. You, the church, must take these truths and minister it to one another. It's your assignment. It's my assignment too, but it's it's your assignment. That's what he's getting at. And he's very specific. These words. These words, he's told us already, are the words of Christ. You and I have been entrusted with something great. Far greater than any one of us or all of us combined. And it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to minister these truths to one another in meaningful, real ways. So that you and I live day by day more like Jesus Christ. That's the goal of all this. It's not simply so that we have a you know cool peppy club. We're not really a cool peppy club, are we? Um, <laughs> if that was our goal, we'd be we'd be really bad, right? <laughs> Rather, the, the goal is so that you and I live holy and upright in a corrupt world. That's the goal, and you're entrusted with it. I'm entrusted. And, and so, as we think through what he's told us. Um, Death is not the end. That's what he's arguing against. That's what they think. There are people in the Thessalonican church that think that death is the end. And after death, it's all over. All the hope that they've had in a future with Jesus Christ is over. And he says, it's not the end. It can't be. That's not in alignment with the resurrection. It's not in alignment with Jesus' teaching. You and I are to grieve with hope. Jesus' resurrection is the basis of our hope. It's the only basis, the only foundation that you and I could ever hope to have. Where else would we go? Jesus thought that we, he will not neglect his own. And finally, you and I must share the hope with other believers. The text doesn't allow us to work around that. It's the only command of the text. He writes to the church and he says, encourage other people with this. Can't really, you know, squirm out of that. It's not like nursery, you know, you can, you know, find a way to get out of nursery and not change diapers. I do a pretty good job of that. At home, I change them sometimes, but I don't really change any diapers at nursery here. Right? None of us can get out of the responsibility to encourage and to comfort one another. And so, how are we doing it then? I think as we think through what we are supposed to do as a result, I think you and I must rejoice in the hope of Jesus' teaching and the resurrection. I think it really has to start with personal application of the truth of Scripture. It's really hard for me to go and encourage you with something that I don't care about. And so as we're confronted with the truth of God's Word, as we're confronted with the hope that's found in the resurrection, 
you and I must begin by first rejoicing in that truth and finding comfort and hope and encouragement in that truth ourselves. And if we don't do that, if the resurrection doesn't get us excited, it's going to be very difficult for me to go to a hurting person and point them to the resurrection and say, you know, it doesn't really do much for me, but the Bible says I'm supposed to encourage you with this. And, you know, this isn't the end. There's a resurrection. So, hope and be happy about that. It doesn't work. You have to encourage your own heart. Perhaps you're sitting here and you're like, you know, some of this is difficult to understand, right? It is. This is difficult to understand. Right? That's why Paul begins the whole section as he's telling them, greet with hope, and he says, some of you are ignorant. Some of you don't understand these truths. Let me help you a little bit. And he tells them, hey, remember the resurrection? That's not just for Jesus. Remember Jesus himself taught us. He's not going to leave us. Rather, what? He is building a mansion for us. That's what Jesus taught. And so you and I are responsible for learning the truths of our faith. Not just these truths. Though these are good truths to start with. Or to at least continue our learning with. But you and I are responsible for learning theology. Not so that we can be an ivory tower or go to seminary to be a cemetery. Rather, we learn the truth so that we can use it effectively in each other's lives. So we can encourage, comfort, exhort, rebuke each other. Then finally, it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to share the truth and encourage one another. That's really what it all boils down to. He wants them to learn the truth, but not for the truth's sake. He wants them to learn the truth so that they can effectively care for the hurts and the needs of other believers. And so let me encourage you this week, as you go about your regular activities, find ways to minister to and care for the hurts and the needs of other believers. With what? The words of Christ. That's all you have. That's all I have. Yeah, I mean, you can make a meal and do other things that, you know, faith is demonstrated by your, your works. Very good. But ultimately, you have to minister God's word. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. We pray that you would um, use these words to uh, strengthen our understanding of who you are and ultimately to uh, be a source of encouragement and comfort to other believers as they um, go through trying and difficult times. We thank you for the fact that you are a God of hope and that your hope does not uh, disappoint us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.